You're listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me as always is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hello, Chris. Hello, Piper. Good. Well, I'm glad we've done that bit. I've got that out of the way. It's Chris the is, worst bit of the show. I'm I, hate, I hate saying hello to you. Chris has gathered, uh, Chris has gathered his favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week, and he's going to share them with us today. Ready, Chris? Yes. In the words of Jareth the Goblin King, if he were an academic and not a child abducting David Bowie. And that's David Bowie abducting a child, not a child who abducts David Bowie. Right. Thank you. You remind me of the fact. What what fact? The fact with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Voodoo? You do. Do what? Remind me of the fact. Fact, magic, fact, magic. (laughs) That made me inordinately happy. Thank you for including me. (laughs) In accordance with what I said earlier about doing facts, here is a fact. Bacon sandwiches used to be banned in London. Historically, Brits have always been pretty uptight when it comes to food, which seems an odd stance to take coming from the nation that brought the world jelly deals, to which the world replied, oh no. The British people have always enjoyed the blander flavours such as basic gravy or tasteless mash. New flavours freaked us out too. We banned the tomato for like 200 years because everyone assumed it was probably poisonous. Is this what happened here, Chris? Do we think bacon sandwiches are going to kill us off? Uh, No, they didn't think that bacon was poisonous. They ate bacon and they ate sandwiches and they even ate bacon in sandwiches in the past. Oh, So this is actually more to do with ham sandwiches than bacon sandwiches. Ham sandwiches were big in Victorian London. Not physically big. They were normal sandwich size, but they were big business. Right, yes, I was going to ask. Thank you. (laughs) In 1851, social commentator Henry Mayhew estimated that every year ham sandwich vendors in London sold 456,800 ham sandwiches. Oh, wow. Okay, so this was a big business at the time then, is what we're saying. It was a large business economically, but not physically. Right. The way it would work is a vendor would have an entire ham that they would boil in the morning, and that's what they would use to make sandwiches from all day. They would just cut a slice off the ham, stick it between two slices of bread, and that's what they sold, ham sandwiches. Piece of piss. No, there was no piss in the sandwiches. Guaranteed no piss. That's a good new, good business model. Pissless ham sandwiches. New pissless ham sandwiches. <laughs> you could do that with anything though, Chris, couldn't you? We finally worked out a way not to piss in our sandwiches. And we're passing it on to you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so at some point in the 1850s, a number of sandwich vendors, perhaps bored of selling the exact same thing in the exact same way, all day, every day, until they were dead, got it into their heads to start selling fancy sandwiches, like with bacon or chicken or cheese. How exciting. Dear Lord. The thing was, they couldn't do what they did with ham with these fancier ingredients. They couldn't boil a block of cheese so that it would keep all day in the increasingly polluted London air. Not with that attitude. I've never tried boiling cheese. Is it what happens if you boil cheese? Well, I've not tried it either, but presumably it goes all melty. But I don't think, unlike with ham, I don't think it preserves it in any way. Right. Okay. 
asking the important questions here. <laughs> Carry on. So these fancy sandwich vendors would sell their fancy sandwiches only during what they knew to be the busiest periods for London sandwich vendors around noon and then again in the early evening. And they found that selling novelties like bacon sandwiches, they could make almost as much money in those short periods as they could all day selling boring old ham sandwiches. So this is before, obviously, before fridges. Yes. Important thing there, because, I mean, really now that wouldn't matter, would it? Because you just bung it in the fridge. Yeah, there's been advances in refrigeration technology in subsequent years. That means that you could sell, say, bacon sandwiches all day long, all day until you're dead. (laughs) Good. Well, that's important. It's important to know (laughs) that that we can do that if we want to. So what, what happened then, then? So ham sandwich vendors were obviously not happy about having their business stolen, especially during their busiest periods. But there were so many ham sandwich vendors in London and fancy alternatives notwithstanding, ham sandwiches were so popular with the Victorian London public that the vendors were a surprisingly powerful lobbying force. And they successfully lobbied London Council to ban sandwich vendors from selling anything but ham sandwiches. Whoa, okay. So what, because because they were, I, I mean, I don't pretend to understand like law now, let alone Victorian law. So bear with me just a second. So what, what we're saying here is that the ham sandwich vendors had such a big business they had so they just have enough money to just do whatever they want in 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 a court it wasn't so much an issue of money it was an issue of imagine now if all the tesco expresses and sainsbury's locals and pretz and what have you closed in london so nobody could buy a sandwich at their lunch hour oh it's sort of like a monopoly yeah, the workforce of London was so dependent on getting ham sandwiches when they were out and about doing their workings that the ham sandwich vendors collectively could threaten to withdraw their business if they didn't ban people selling non-ham sandwiches. Right. Yeah, many of these vendors were essentially family businesses passed down from generation to generation. So I guess they saw the the fancy sandwich upstarts as a threat to tradition. (laughs) Band name called it. Fancy sandwiched upstarts. I'm having that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So when they went into court then, what what, what did they say then? Did they they just say, we don't want them? Or did they they actually say that there's an issue here? Right. So this wasn't a court thing. It was the, it was London Council they were lobbying to ban fancy sandwiches. Fancy sandwiches. Yes. Okay. Okay. So they just went to the council like, yeah, we don't, we, we don't, we don't, we don't want these guys on our strip. Well, I don't know how this works. Um, we, <laughs> don't want them baconing up the the, the streets of London. Uh, I we we so so we're. I don't know how lobbying works, Chris. To be honest, do you just say? <laughs> do you have to give like a legitimate reason, or do they have to? Do they, do they just go? No, we're not going to do it anymore if bacon people turn up. Not bacon people, you know, people making bacon sandwiches. Yeah. The way it usually works is you have enough money or power to get people to do what you want, but you have to pretend to give actual reasons just for appearances sake. So the ham sandwich vendors presented a few health and safety concerns to bolster their arguments, such as that cheese would spoil too quickly in the London air. 
they claim that the chicken being sold was often undercooked and so dangerous to people's health. And they also claim that a ham possesses a number of restorative properties that are lost in the curing process used to make bacon. Oh, okay. Well, this is interesting. Restorative properties? What, like magic ham? Well, it's normal ham. It's just it turns out, apparently, according to these people, that normal ham can do all sorts of stuff that when it's turned into bacon, it can't do. If I ate a ham sandwich now, what did they? what would they say would happen to me then? You'd have more energy, you'd be more sexually potent. Whoa! Or in the case of people with ovaries, more fertile. Ham sounds a lot more exciting than I thought then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'd be immune to most diseases for a, a short period after eating your ham sandwich. Oh, what, like temporary god mode? Yes, kind of, yeah. Like putting the invincibility cheat in, yeah. Right, yeah. So basically, ham's a, a cheat code. Or like when uh, Mario picks up a... It's a star that makes him all invincible, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so eating a ham sandwich is the equivalent of Mario picking up a star. Right. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, I'm sure they didn't use that analogy. So London Council would just be like, listen, I'm going to have to stop you, people. <laughs> Because Mario's not been invented yet, has it? Just, just and they'll go, oh yeah, shit, sorry, forgot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I forgot about the linearity of time. <laughs> so the ban that was enacted was enforced by the police who would patrol the streets of London, especially at noon and the early evening, inspecting vendors for contraband sandwich ingredients. Because bacon was by far the most popular of the fancy sandwich ingredients. And because it was the similarly poor scene ham vendors who had called for the ban, vendors caught selling illegal sandwiches often called the police pigs, which is where the derogatory term for law enforcement officers comes from. Oh, I do you know what? One of my favourite things that we don't actually get to hear enough of in the, on this show is slang etymology. And that that is that is just that's fascinating anyway, Chris. I mean, I'd like to know more slang etymology if if that if that ever comes up on the show again. Please feel free to divulge more information about that, about things like that, because that's fun. Um but so it sounds like this was quite a big industry in Victorian times. Do any of the original ham sandwich vendors exist today? If they did, they'd be like 200 years old. I mean, I've seen 200-year-old businesses in London. That's their thing, isn't it? No, I thought you were referring to the actual people selling the sandwiches, if they were still around, like a skeleton on the London street. Oh! Selling ham sandwiches. Time for another one of Chris's world-famous facts. Here's fact two. There are rules for queuing. As a British person, I love a good queue. It's just really good to see people organising themselves in a line, as God intended, rather than an absolute <laughs> shambles. As God intended, is that in the Bible? <laughs> as far as you know it might be. When God made Eve, did he place her directly behind Adam? Yes, actually, that was the first queue. <laughs> <laughs> but what were they queuing for? the rest of the people i don't know how the bible works i don't know what happens <laughs> and your dad's a minister <laughs> anyway i also as a british person i feel like i know how to queue and have done since i 
formed an orderly queue of one in my mother's uterus for nine months. So I don't really need rules. But as a British person, I also love rules, so I'm conflicted. Where's all this come from, Chris? Hold on, Piper. Wouldn't every single human being who has ever existed have formed an orderly queue? Therefore, it wouldn't be a specifically British thing. No, that's true. As a nationalistic brag, it's not really... (laughs) It doesn't work at all. (laughs) No. (laughs) Only British people are born from uteruses. All those French people, they just burst out like the alien in Alien. (laughs) Anyway, so this was a guy who was queuing for a Huey Lewis and the News concert in 2014 and found himself becoming increasingly annoyed with all the other people in the queue queuing wrong, not forming a proper line, not immediately moving forward when the queue moves forward, that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he quickly wrote down what he saw as the until then unspoken rules of queuing, had a friend run them down to the nearest photocopying place and distributed the rules to the other queuers. Sorry, is this in America or is this over here? This was over here in England, land of queuing. So the rules for queuing were not adopted by that first Huey Lewis and the News queue and the line continued in its disorderly fashion. But the querulous queuer was not to be put off so easily. He later expanded upon his queue rules and collected them in a book, writing under the pseudonym Cuey Cuis and the Cues. That's uh, great. Was he spurred on by the fact that it didn't work on the night to basically expand on this into an entire book? Yes, clearly the state of queuing was far worse than he initially thought. So it required not just a photograph bit of paper, but an entire book. Right. I feel like this guy needs maybe some sort of hobby. Although I guess this is a hobby. He does really. have a hobby. Yeah. In fact, Cuey Cuey under Cues, that is to say the original author and some of his friends, he has friends, now seem to spend their spare time going to Cues and handing out their book to Cuers. The apparent popularity of the rules is attested to by the large quantity of discarded books left behind outside venues across the country. What are we saying here that people are people are just like taking the book and then just sort of leaving it there and going, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, but that's probably because they're like me. They feel like they know how to queue. So for, um, particularly for our American listeners, what are the rules of queuing that have been uh, published in a book? So QE, QS and the queues, the rules for queuing cover almost every aspect of queuing. So it covers distance. You must stand no closer or further than half a metre from the person in front of you. This, of course, had to be amended during the pandemic to comply with government guidelines. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a a sequel waiting to happen, isn't it? Bet he cashed in. Well, he gives out the bit for free, so he didn't cash in, as you put it. A proper line must be maintained, completely straight, when possible, but if not, then following the contours of whatever building or barrier the queue is next to. Oh, right. No, I hate when people don't do that. Okay, yeah, fair enough. This guy's got a point. (laughs) No, that's fucking annoying. If you leave the queue for any reason and for any length of time, you must rejoin at the back. You cannot have someone save your place. Similarly, you are not allowed to save a place for someone who has not yet joined the queue. They will have to join at the back. 
Right, I'm starting to realize how much I hate people who don't queue right now, actually. I, I, <laughs> I think my annoyance is just limited to the time I, that I spend in the queue. And afterwards, I forget that how, how annoying it is when people queue wrong. I just sort of, I don't know, maybe it's like being born. You'd sort of block it out. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's every cube is a birth. Yeah, and every birth is a queue. Is it a queue if there's only one person there? I don't think it is. It's like when you go to like a theme park and there's literally no one else queuing for the ride. So you just walk around the labyrinthine barrier path they've made up. It's not really a queue. That's what being bored is like. And then I suppose like the people who get like tied up with their own umbilical cord is like somebody just flailing wildly around while they're walking through the barriers and getting caught up in all the ropes. <laughs> And then a cesarean would be when you've messed up so badly, these stewards have to come with a big knife and cut up all the ropes to let you out. <laughs> and then I suppose an epidural would be <laughs> when you've just taken loads of drugs beforehand. Speaking of, though, one of the more controversial rules concerns pregnant people. Anyone who is over 36 weeks pregnant is not allowed to queue because there is the ever-present danger that they may give birth while queuing. And in addition to the general disruption that this would cause to the queue, according to the rules of queuing, the baby would be considered to have cut in. Wait, hang on. So, so the baby wouldn't be considered to have cut in if it's not been born yet? even though it's technically in the queue. No, because at that point it is basically occupying the same space as the person carrying it in their womb. Right, and also, arguably, it wouldn't have the same enjoyment level in a Huey Lewis in the news concert while in the womb. Well, they do say babies could listen to music and they say it helps their, well, they, their growth. Well, they should fucking pay their way then. <laughs> <laughs> Buy a ticket like the rest of us, you leeching wanker. Fuck off. And we're not here to discuss the ticketing policy of Huey Lewis and the news. We're discussing cues in general. Right, yeah, sorry, I got angry at the wrong thing again. <laughs> Anyone caught contravening these rules is to be sent to the back of the queue, where, as added punishment, they are to let a set number of subsequent cures cut in front of them, the number determined by the severity of the queue crime. So who would enforce this then? Is this just like the, the, the good British people would all just in some, in some sort of weird queue vigilante scenario? No. So in the queue's early days, when a third person first joins a queue, the queuers elect one of their number to be the queue commander or QC, who will arbitrate disputes between queuers and set punishments. The QC is allowed to leave and re-enter the queue, but only on official queue business. And a QC caught abusing their privilege will be stripped of office and a new QC elected. A new QC is also to be elected whenever the current one leaves the queue because they've got to the front and are now, you know, doing whatever it was they were queuing for. Okay, so I mean, we've got the staffing sorted for the queue. That's good. This, this all seems quite complicated, Chris. Obviously, as I've very much established in this fact, it's part of our identity nationalistically, I guess. So we wouldn't really have a problem with the complexity of adequate queuing or appropriate queuing. But what about, is this, this set of rules, is it 
an international set of rules? Does this go beyond just like British queuing? Is there a simpler version for Americans? Yeah, the American version is just a single sentence. Please stand behind the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> If you would like to discuss any of the facts on the podcast with us and other fans of the show, you can do so by joining our Discord server over on Discord. Get in touch for a link. In, in the meantime, let's hear another fact from the Institute. Here's fact three. Experimental animals have unionized. Right, so off the bat, I'm going to assume we don't mean animals that perform experimental music have joined the musician's union. Is that, is that right? <laughs> I don't know of any animals who are performing experimental music or indeed any music. Right. Apart from birds. But I mean, they don't do it as their job. No, but you've got a right to royalties, even if it's done for fun. That's kind of the point of the Musicians' Union. I'm not having that, Chris. Yeah, but the birds aren't selling their bird song. In fact, it's almost the opposite. If you remember, there are the birds who were singing Elvis hits. Oh, yeah. And they're being sued for royalty by the Elvis estate, even though they're birds and have no money. Well, maybe they should join the Musicians' Union, Chris. I feel like they, 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 they need to be at least be able to defend themselves. But that's not what this is about, <laughs> Piper. Let's, let's get back on track, Chris, honestly. Jesus. Um, so we've had... Ghosts go on strike recently on the show, if you remember. I'm sure you do, because you were the one that told me about it. Um, yeah, I mean, not on the show. No. I, mean, I, I talked about them striking. The strike wasn't aired live in an episode of the hit podcast, Chickens Can't See Cubes. Yes, no, they weren't striking on the show. But we did talk about it, Chris. So why not animals? I mean, how, how have they managed this, Chris? Well, the animals themselves haven't unionised, because that would be impossible. As we discussed a couple of weeks ago when we talked about China's communist animals, wild animals might be having all sorts of revolutions inside their own heads. <laughs> they lack the language skills necessary to communicate whatever revolutionary ideologies they might have to other animals. Also, they probably don't understand things like socialism or unionization because these are human concepts. It's weird that this has come up more than once. Well, it's a weird podcast. <laughs> yeah. So not the animals, but an animal rights group, the Socialist Animal Liberation Front, or SALF. SALF is one of these animal rights groups which opposes cosmetic animal testing, but sees animal testing for medicine as a necessary evil. And they have created a labour union for those animals. So human beings have created a union on behalf of the workers who are not human beings or workers? Yes. Why? So on behalf of the animals, South is demanding that the better working conditions sometimes afforded to human labourers be extended to experimental animals. These conditions include a four-day work week for the animals. Reasonable. Reasonable, I think. I think that's all right. That's okay. They've got lots of animal shit to do. At least four weeks annual leave. What are they going to do? I mean... The, the, All the animal shit you were just saying about. I know that's that's the responsibilities that they've got, but where are they going to go on holiday? You just get, get like package holidays to Tenerife for a bunch of chimpanzees. It's not going to happen, is it? No, but they could just, you know, have a, a week off every so often. Have a, week, have a week off. Yeah, fair enough, actually. Better living conditions, like bigger cages, nicer food. I mean, this is a good point, Chris, isn't it? Because like, it's not only are they in desperate need of a workers' union, they also live in 
on the job, which is actually worse than a lot of human jobs. Most of us get to go home at the end of the night, don't we? So they've got to provide adequate living conditions. And a share of the profits from any medicines made from the testing done on the animals to be paid in treats and toys. Oh, that's cute, that. I mean, obviously, yes, also also legitimate, but quite cute. So that's, that's what South want for the animals. Does anyone ask the animals? Because it sounds like they're talking over him a little bit. Well, you could ask the animals, but they probably wouldn't respond because they're animals, Piper. Oh, yeah. We, we still haven't got to this point of being able to talk to the animals. It's rubbish. We've been doing this podcast how long? <laughs> how long? A year at least. Oh, well, it's our responsibility, is it, Piper? No, but it's just come up a few times. That's all. We should be doing this. We should be working on some kind of fucking do little machine or something. The do little 5000. I mean, yeah. I mean, I've obviously considered this before. Yeah. <laughs> But also, I mean, you're part of this podcast too. Why haven't you been working on it? Well, I haven't got the funding that you've got. I don't have the funding that I've got. So South are speaking for the animals. They're pretty sure that that's what they want. They want better working conditions because obviously they do. Probably don't want to be there at all, do they, Chris? Well, that is true. But it's also true of the kind of human labourers who get these kind of working conditions. They don't want to be there either. So if they have to be there, the animals, then I'm sure that they would say that they want a four-day work week four weeks annual leave, better living conditions, and lots more treats and toys. Yeah, 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 fair enough. Okay, yeah. So, South, they've basically said that this, these are the demands, but what the companies that are experimenting on the animals, what 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 sort of incentive have they got to actually follow through on it? Because, like, well, usually a, a union requires the workers to strike to put pressure on the employer. What's the equivalent here? If South's demands are not met then self claims that the animals, like human labourers, will go on strike. By which they mean that self will abduct all the experimental animals in the world. Right. (laughs) Which does seem like a bald claim. So they're not, so let me get this straight, I didn't quite understand this. So they're not going after like one company at a time. They're just saying this is a demand for every company that does experimentation on any animal in the world right now. Well, yeah, because unions of labourers don't work for a specific company. A union will be people of a particular trade who might individually work for different companies. And it's the same here. These are individual experimental animals who might be in the laboratories of separate pharmaceutical companies. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Well, if I was, God forbid, if I was someone experimenting on animals for monetary gain, I would say to self, I'd say, well, I don't believe you because like, this is just a, a group of people who give a shit about animals, which is, which is absolutely fair enough. But I don't think they've got the money to follow through on what they're threatening. I, I don't think they could abduct every single animal from every single lab in the world. Yes, it does sound absurd. And self-absconding with every experimental animal in the world is almost certainly an empty threat. But pharmaceutical companies do take any peril to their profits seriously and so do seem to be taking some kinds of preventative actions. Oh, okay. GlaxoSmithKline, for example, are reportedly breeding animals to take the place of any stolen by self. Scab animals, basically. Right. Or scabimals, if you will. So they breed animals. They wouldn't know. The scab animals, the scanimals. 
They won't know that they are scabs, no. No, no, they wouldn't have to get past the picket line. To quote a certain someone from a rival podcast who makes up their own facts, they probably don't even know they're animals. Warning, the fourth and final facts will make you hungry. And if you're already hungry, uh, then God help you, I don't know. Here's fact four. God help you? What, as if you'll become some kind of hyper-hungry? And eat the entire world. None of us knows what be, what goes beyond that point, do we? So, like, well, maybe, maybe you just... <laughs> it's like the, the hunger event horizon. <laughs> well, we've never discussed it before, Chris, but it doesn't mean it's not worth discussing. Well, because it doesn't fucking exist, that's why. Ah, right, yeah. That does often cause an issue in this podcast, so yeah. Because we only talk about things that have actually happened and that actually genuinely exist. For example... McVitie's genuinely has a stockpile of Jaffa cakes. Really? Yes, really. I didn't make it up. <laughs> Honest. I'm a big fan of Jaffa cakes, Chris. McVitie's, in a markedly similar way to Jonas Salk with the polio vaccine, did not trademark the Jaffa cake name in order to give the gift of the beloved confection to the entire world of cake and biscuit manufacturers. In 1976, they also became the first... I'm, I'm a fan of Jaffa Cakes, so just bear with me. I'm going to just do some bits. They also became the first officially licensed Star Wars food prior to the first film's release, despite the lackluster sales uptake for the temporarily titled Jaffa the Cake. McVitie's pressed on with the whole marmalade, spongy, biscuit, mooncake thing, and they have practically become a British institution for kids' packed lunches and post-sesh snacks. So in many ways, it's unsurprising that McVitie's has started hoarding the tangy treats. Is, is this for the inevitable apocalypse panic buying of Jaffa Cakes, Chris, or is there some other reason for the Jaffa Cake stockpile? So in 1991, Jaffa Cakes were facing an economically driven ontological crisis. Jaffa Cakes, for our overseas listeners, are small discs of sponge cake topped with orange jam and covered in chocolate. Now, in the UK, value-added tax, or VAT, is added to chocolate-covered biscuits, but not normal biscuits or any kind of cake. And Jaffa Cakes, despite being sold in the biscuit aisle of shops and eaten in the manner of biscuits, that is to say, just taking one out of the packet and popping it in your mouth, rather than cutting it into slices or sticking candles in them on someone's birthday, are classed as cakes. Yeah, they are. Why, why though? They, I, th- I think, it, isn't it something to do with the whole, um, when cakes go stale, they go soft, and when... Biscuits go to stale, they go hard, or the other way around. You are right there, yes. In 1991, the UK government challenged this definition of the Jaffa cake, insisting that it was a chocolate-covered biscuit and not a cake, and therefore was subject to VAT. Uh, McVitie's, the primary manufacturer of Jaffa cakes, successfully defended their product's classification as a cake which they did by demonstrating, as you say, that Jaffa cakes harden when they go stale, while biscuits go soft, and by baking a giant Jaffa cake to better display its cake-like qualities. Cool, okay. Oh, do you know what? Jaffa cakes are fucking awesome, Chris. This whole thing is just brilliant. (laughs) This whole VAT thing is 
obviously not the most exciting thing about Jaffa Cakes, but... Are you kidding, Piper? V-A-T? Wow! I'm tenting as we speak. <laughs> value-added tax? More like value-added tenting. What a beautiful turn of phrase. Poetic, some might say. Some might, yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad we got to educate the, uh, the listener on value-added tax. It's important. What has that got to do with the fact at hand, Chris? So if McVitie's had lost the case and Jaffa Cakes had been officially classed as chocolate-covered biscuits, then their price in shops would have gone up by 17.5%, the rate of VAT at the time. This would mean that potentially sales of Jaffa Cakes would have gone down as they would have been more expensive and so people would have bought less of them. Although they were confident in their ability to prove that Jaffa Cakes were cakes and not chocolate-covered biscuits, McVitie's nevertheless prepared for a loss in the tribunal by creating a Jaffa Cake stockpile in a warehouse next to the Jaffa Cake factory in Stockport. The idea behind the Jaffa Cake stockpile was that should sales in Jaffa Cakes decline due to becoming more expensive, McVitie's could still exert some control over the price by controlling the supply. Admittedly, they already control the supply of Jaffa Cakes because they're the ones who make Jaffa Cakes. But with a stockpile, they could, for example, withdraw Jaffa Cakes from sale until demand for Jaffa Cakes reached fever pitch and then flood the market with stockpiled Jaffa Cakes at an inflated price, thereby making as much money as they would have had they been on sale all along at pre-VAT prices. This whole thing is going to sound really weird if you've never heard of Jaffa Cakes, McVitie's or the VAT crisis with the whole Jaffa Cake versus Biscuit thing. Like, it sounds it sounds very eccentric British, doesn't it, Chris? I mean... <laughs> I don't know why this, this episode of the podcast seems to be about British identity, doesn't it? <laughs> um, it's our Jerusalem. It's our William Blake's Jerusalem. And did these feet in ancient times make a Jaffa cake stockpile? <laughs> it's still there, right? The stockpile. Have they got any plans what to do with it? Because for me, this is like a lifetime supply of Jaffa cakes. So I'm very interested in what's happening now <laughs> very interested in its exact location the security around it and any weaknesses there might be therein for example can i piper doors chat to one of the security persons and perhaps ask them out on a date and get them to reveal their weaknesses to me which is of course my mo when I case any place, be it a bank or a Jaffa Cake warehouse. The reason we know about McVitie's Jaffa Cake stockpile is because McVitie's recently publicly announced its existence. And the reason that they did so is Brexit and the suboptimal trade deals resulting from Brexit. These represent another economically driven ontological crisis for the Jaffa Cake. 
in that given the suboptimal trade deals negotiated by our Conservative government, Jaffa Cakes might not be able to get made anymore. Oh, okay. So I so it's not so much to do with like other things they're not able to get deals with now Brexit's happened. McVitie's didn't go, well, if you've if you've got things that we could repurpose Jaffa cakes for, we have a ton of them. Um I don't know if we can like distill them down into oil or anything, but we can <laughs> certainly find out. What could you repurpose Jaffa cakes for? Loft insulation? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good idea, you see. Is it though? Have you done the research? No, but it's a it's a start. Full disclosure, if you are looking into insulating your loft, don't just jam a bunch of Jaffa cakes in there on Piper's word. It's probably cheaper than fiberglass. Yeah, but it might not be as effective and you might end up spending more money on energy. Yeah, and also getting rid of the the smell of Jaffa cakes when they inevitably go off. Yes, and all the rats who will converge on your house to eat all the Jaffa cakes in your walls. No, it's not. It's not a perfect plan. But neither was Brexit, was it? Admittedly, though, Piper, people are putting more thought into not putting Jaffa cakes into the walls than our Conservative government ever made into Brexit. Every time somebody has thought, shall I put Jaffa cakes in my walls? No, that's more thought <laughs> than either David Cameron, Theresa May or Boris Johnson has ever put into Brexit. That's it. That's the end of this episode of Chickens Can't See Cubes with me, Piper Dawes. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute. I can be found on Twitter at Troby Norton and the Institute can be found at Muin Photo Ray Ray, which is, as you know by now, M-U-I-N-F-O-T-O-R-E-R-E. You can also contact the podcast on Twitter at C-Cubes and Facebook and Instagram at Chickens Can't See Cubes. If you'd like to actually join the conversation on Discord with us, tag us or PM the podcast on the socials mentioned just now and we'll send you a link. Thank you for listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes. And remember, you probably could make it up, but we haven't. Honest. And we'll catch you once again on next week's show. Bye, everyone. Bye. Sounds like a really weird 80s video nasty. It does. Like, I don't know what that would be, though. Like, a dog that's just made of scabs. Well, there'd be probably unique animals that have, have mutated from some scab that I, that someone's picked off and dropped down the toilet. It's just going to the sewer and combined with radioactive waste or something. Uh, so like giant scabs, just like, like bits of hair coming out of them and maybe some malformed limbs. Just crawling out of drain pipes and toilets and eviscerating people. <sighs> Horrible. Horrible. Let's move on. Right. <laughs>